Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Today, we've got a really interesting show and I'm super excited to get into it. Um, I think we're gonna get a lot of great information and also just some stories. And, and today's speaker uh, has an event coming up that's really exciting, a nationally known event when it comes to the self-storage space. And we're gonna get into uh, just kind of the way that life can happen. You know, there's this old saying that life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. And, and we're going to get into the story about how he got to speak on stage and, and got to this event and just some of his background, really interesting uh, conversation ahead of us, I think, when it comes to not only just the self-storage space, but also uh, transitions in life and, you know, why we do certain things, which is one of the things that I started this show for. I mean, anybody can get on and talk about investing and returns, but when we get into the whys of the choices we've made and and the decisions that we make, et cetera, it always gets more interesting to me. So today's guest is Charles Gao, and he is an expert in the self-storage space, which is, you know, it's one of those industries that um, has been around for a long time. It's always been something that most of us have seen and been interested in, but I think really the last five or 10 years, it's, it's uh, really shown up on the scene. And, and I don't think I've really gone into the weeds on this. And so I'm excited to have you on the show today, Charles. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So Charles, what, uh, what's got you most excited right now? Well, one of our fellow Go Abundance Go Bros, Jake Harris, kind of wrote it that, um, you know, when there's blood in the streets, even if it's your own blood, uh, that's the best time to invest. Um, I definitely see their opportunities to invest in that you have properties, especially semi-distressed properties that are making it difficult for people to invest because limited options for financing. You know, I think the biggest struggle for most people, however, is uh, rates are, are rising, but prices are not falling nearly as fast as rising. So how do we balance that delicate balance of, you know, we're getting a better price than what we would have got nine months ago, but the rate is eating up a lot of that difference in price change that we could have gotten out of that so yeah so you see that as a opportunity um i definitely see it as an area of opportunity for sure um it's also opportunity for us to pivot to more of a debt model so uh you know more recently my partner and i uh, have uh, started to go towards a debt model where instead of working with banks and paying them you know seven half eight percent interest on deals we're just going to turn around and give that to our investors so kind of a two-tier structure or a single tier structure they simply just loan into us on a debt structure at and get anywhere from seven to nine percent return and then uh then we don't have to worry about preferred equity and more importantly for myself and my partner it also allows us to potentially um keep more equity to ourselves I like that. What kind of, uh, by the way, same, same model right now, we've got a, we've got a debt model that we're working on, um, in our mobile home park, uh, portfolio. And it's really just because we've already acquired, you know, all the properties. And at this stage, we're, we're basically just doing infill. We're not acquiring at this point. Mm -hmm. And so we've shifted to a debt model to do infill and investors are loving it. Um, so I'm curious what, uh, we'll get into the four questions here shortly, but you've piqued my interest. What's the response from investors? Are they are they liking it? 
You know, uh, honestly, like I did not know what the response was going to be. I posted out a post for a deal for just like a quick, like $1.4 million raise, which as you know, uh, when you're doing a raise that's that small, it, the legal fees, it almost doesn't make sense, especially if you have two to three investors, you know, to do that. And I pretty much had three commitments from investors, like within 20 minutes. And actually the most common thing I've heard from almost every single one of them was they wanted the place to park their funds out on a much shorter time frame, and also they had IRA funds because when I looked at, I'm like, sure, I wouldn't want to do that. If I can do eight percent prof and get a tax free, and then also get all the benefits of cost segregation and all that stuff like that, why would I do that? But then I forgot that you know people who are investing with a solo 401k or a self directed, they're not really concerned about that because they already have that tax shelter anyways. So that was one thing. Uh, the other thing that we did that was kind of a unique pivot was that we, we said that they have to keep their funds uh, in the um, the debt essentially for 18 months, but uh, it's a three-year commitment. But if they wanted to go to, so it was two tiers. Um, there, well, actually it was three tiers. We offered one rate if they wanted to get paid interest payments now. A second, if they waited the full three years, then we gave them a bigger payment, but then they didn't take any payments right away. And the third was if they wanted an early exit we had paid them out, you know, essentially like a five to 6% uh, payout, which was less than what they initially asked for. But then they also get the benefit that they find a deal that you really wanted and they want those funds. They could exit out as early as 18 months with just 60 days notice. So that was kind of how we structured that. And then and that's what really opened my eyes. Like, wow, I can't believe how much IRA money or people that just have well funds I want to park short term because they got, essentially want to see what's going to happen in the next 18 months with everything going on with, you know, government intervention at rates and whatnot. Yeah, no, that's cool. Well, let's jump into the four questions and then we'll circle back to the industry and, and what you see going on. So if you could well, narrow it down to one thing that has had the greatest impact on your success, what would that be? If you asked me this multiple times throughout my lifetime, I think it would change. And then obviously now that I have the benefit of hindsight. Um, but I, I think that the, the environment I grew up in, um, it, it, it was a tougher environment from the fact that, um, you know, we didn't grow up like in poverty, but I, we sure lived like it. My, my dad was a, a super cheap person. Uh, he, we lived like, I remember one time he bought me a sweater in sixth grade that was so big. I was able to wear it through my senior year of high school. Because, uh, but you know, I wanted that Nike hoodie and he's like, okay, you can get it. And then when I went, went to choose a color, oh, brown is $5 cheaper than the other one. So brown is what you're going to get. So living like that kind of my whole life with my dad, I remember my parents would try to get us to do baths together, like as, as tell us as old as possible we were, just to make sure that we could, you know, keep expenses down. Now, I think that those collective events was the biggest change for me because I think I think it allowed me to really realize that, like, when I think that I've given everything I have, I still can always give a little bit more. I love it. What was your greatest setback, and what did you learn from it? Health, health wise, I had a health scare where essentially uh, they found cancerous cells after I, I did this like chemical swab of my mouth and then they did this like flashlight test and found cancerous cells uh, in my gums and through my throat. So I obviously that was probably the biggest one. Um, not from the standpoint that although financially it set me back almost six figures or just over, I think just the fact that all the mental toughness that was required to get through it. Um, I'm a really... Uh, some people would call it impatient. I like to refer to it as being an activator. I'm impatient to basically get progress um, and uh, to not be able to do anything, to have my mind race, you know, for a while I'm, you know, was sick. That was uh, easily the hardest thing I've had to go through. Wow. When was that? Uh, I was 26 at the time. So oh. this was shortly before the uh, 
07, 08 crash. So, man, I want to, I was just about to see it was a few years ago, but so it's been over a decade ago. Yeah. I do that all the time. I'll be like, oh, this is a few years ago. And then it's like, yeah, so it was, it's over a decade ago. It was actually going on like, oh, yeah, almost 14 years ago it happened. Wow. So I was really, I was really young when it happened. So that's, that was kind of made it even a little bit more shocking. And actually at the time too, as well, uh, one of my friends, uh, his name is Chad. He actually passed away the year before of cancer and he was even younger than I was. And so I think that added a lot to my anxiety because, you know, I don't think anybody, I mean, everybody probably maybe knows one person distant or whatnot, but to actually kind of see it firsthand and even to see how he went about it, you know, for me, um, I closed off at for sure as well, similar to he did. But uh, towards the end, I definitely started to open up more because I realized that the, the more I could share that burden of others, the easier it was going to be on my life. So is that like one of the lessons you learned from it? The more you could like share with others? Is that... You know, I thought I learned that lesson with sharing the burden and then I made that mistake again. And then I feel like I actually think I've made it a mistake multiple times in my life. But I think that each time I didn't drag my feet, I, I learned, I realized I was making that mistake faster. Um, you know, because I'm, I'm, you'll, you'll see this about me, you know, as we, as we talk, but um, I've always been a person that's done everything. So uh, to, to really allow other people that hand off tasks, it's been a business struggle for me throughout my life. Um, you know, similar to my dad, I, I've always been a heavy owner operator, even though I've definitely done a better job than he did. So I'm going to circle back to that. Cause that's a huge part of, you know, I think our evolution as business owners. Um, I like the way you said it, you've always been a heavy owner operator. So I'm going to anchor on that, but let's, let's move forward for a second. What is the piece of advice that you find yourself sharing the most? Well, take action for one that's more common. Uh, but the other one that I think that's a little bit more rare that people aren't used to hearing is uh, valuing other people's time uh, as much as it should be. And um, the real short, quick, in-your-face advice I got from one of my mentors that's a very, very high net worth investor is that I was messaging them all these like quick questions like, hey, where can I look up uh, you know, Grand Rapids rental certificates, uh, expiring, things like that. And you know, he would answer them like in like five seconds. I'm like, man, this guy's an awesome resource. And so I keep messaging him. And then finally, I think he, I call him on a bad day or whatever, but he simply said, if you keep asking me these questions that you can find on Google in five seconds, I'm going to start ignoring you. So you need to figure out how to value my time. Yes, you know, you might be making 40 to $60 an hour and it takes you three hours to figure something out. And yes, you can call me and I can tell you in five seconds, but you know, what if it takes you five minutes and my time is worth $10,000 an hour? How much did you cost me in my time? So realizing that it really allowed me to figure out one, how to find mentors more frequently and two, how to figure out how to solicit them too as well. Because, you know, I, I can tell you personally, if you ask me a question, I've been asked over and over again, like, you know, like I, when I go to local meetups, I get the same question over and over again. Hey, tell me about yourself. And it's like, okay. But then if you ask me, say, Hey, I have this scenario where I have this crazy story. What would you do here? That actually gets me excited because I'm like, wow, I wonder what I would do there. Then I might actually call some of my buddies to help you solve the problem because I'm curious of the answer. So I think that's the biggest thing, especially you're starting out newer in this business, that you really have to value other people at what they're worth, not what you think they're worth. Just like I have a consulting business, on average, we charge you know over a thousand dollars an hour, and people will say like, I can't afford that, like that's not worth it. Well, that's because your time is not worth a thousand dollars an hour. But if your time was worth a thousand dollars an hour, then you would have no problem paying it. Because I know that what I'm going to teach you, you couldn't learn in the same amount of time that that we're going to teach it to you. I love it. That's good. 
Who has had the greatest impact on your life, Charlie? Um, you know, this answer has changed more frequently, but uh, I would definitely say as of recently, it's been my father. Um, he moved in with us recently, uh, a few months back. And um, my father's and I relationship, uh, I, I want to say it was great. I would say it was more of a relationship of respect. Uh, he was a workaholic, uh, pretty much worked seven days a week uh, from, you know, 1030 in the morning till 930 at night. So I had to stay up when I was a kid to, just to see him. And then I'd see him in the morning when he dropped me off at school. And that was pretty much the extent of the amount of time I saw my father. And so, you know, to see him struggling, you know, both of his mental and physical health, um, uh, honestly, I, there's sometimes selfishly, I think, I don't know if I want to see him like this, um, you know, and other times I'm just like, you know, I, I want to take this time to embrace, you know, what limited time I have with them because we, we all don't know how much time we have on this earth. And so it's changed how I look at philanthropy it's changed basically how I just look at spending time with my family, even though I thought I was pretty good already. But I, I would say that that's easily been the biggest change for me is kind of just seeing how that mindset happens with, you know, seeing your loved ones kind of, you know, essentially just uh, watch their health decline. You know, we were we were talking off camera a little bit and just just even what you're going through with your dad has really caused you to shift even in your career, your business, et cetera, right? Yeah. What are some of yeah, the... Yeah, I mean, like I... I, well, so I've been able to test my business models and systems now to see what the business looks like when I'm absolutely not a part of it. And uh, I can tell you that. So one of the biggest changes that we made to my business model is that um, we were uh, really doing all aspects of self-storage. And when I was just busy, my dad, like there's there's a day he went to the ER for a suspected, a suspected stroke. And I, I had to sit down and like, okay, of all the things I do, I had to, I valued them kind of like, what pays me the most amount of time? So, you know, like all the different tasks I do and then what what was worth to me and what I pay somebody else. So like um, doing my laundry. I actually do like doing my own laundry, but I can pay somebody else 20 bucks to do it and it's not worth that time for me. So outsource that. And another one of those things was actually asset managing or property managing these properties. So when I looked at it and I compared it to building the facilities, I looked at building facilities. I'm like, wow, my, my return on time is high four figures, even even over upwards of over $10,000 an hour to build a storage facility. Whereas when I asset manage these, it's low four figures or high hundreds of dollars an hour. So we actually pivot our business model now to be more of a build to kind of flip models. So we build them, get the specific occupancy, and then sell these facilities to somebody that's willing to stabilize it. So just kind of limiting the operations because that operations aspect was good return on time. And even though I had my staff doing almost all the work for me, it really just allowed us to focus on what is the greatest return on time um, for money. And, and that way, obviously, I can continue to focus on basically the care of my family. What does your team look like? Uh, so I have a lot of third-party vendors that I feel like they basically work for me, but I actually really only have three staff members. It's basically a VA, an executive assistant, and my wife. And that's pretty much all it breaks down to. I have another two VAs that are, they work extensively for me, you know, handle bill pay, personal stuff, but they're not actually employees of myself. And then, you know, I have a lot of guys that, you know, I employ for a few months out of the years, you know, like my concrete guy, my excavator, they don't work for me, but it, it, our relationship does really makes it feel like we're partners. I love it. You had mentioned a little bit ago about, you know, being a heavy owner operator. And I'd like to, you know, I'm, I'm really curious because, you, you made some comments about, uh, you know, your setback and cancer and, and you were kind of a do it yourself, or I think this is 
for the audience and also for me, I've seen, you know, as I go backwards, um, I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, The Big Leap, and it, it talks about upper limits. Yeah. I, I think so many of us go through that evolution. And so I'm curious to go backwards and hearing what I just heard you say, you know, you're primarily using third-party ven vendors. Um, you're so analytical when it comes to your time and investment, et cetera. Take us back through the journey and, and back through that, moving from heavy owner-operator, uh, going through the cancer scare, even prioritizing like time with your family and the situation yeah. with your dad. How has all that looked? And um, what would be your advice for, for people that are in that, I can do it better myself mode? So I, I've had bigger staffs in the past and, and actually with the crash and other things, I had, did have to let them go. And the biggest thing I noticed is that the burden that goes with having employees that you're paying on a W-2 it, it, it's significantly different from having people that are almost completely employed from me. So that's one thing. The, the second thing is that um, going back to kind of talking about that return on time, what I found when you're growing a company, you're either growing it or you're, it's declining. It, it's really that it stays the same. So one of these I noticed is that, Hey, we're putting in systems. We're putting in systems, putting systems, but it never stopped. We are always putting in the system to be more passive because if you don't grow, your competitors basically are eventually going to basically figure out how to outgrow you. And so what I really kind of learned throughout the, our evolution of our businesses is that you either have to grow, keep growing, or sell the business and exit. Because if you try to see where you're at, your competitors are not going to just try to see where they're at. They're going to surpass you. They're going to get more market share. They're going to get more economies of scale. So as a result of that, I really kind of just dumbed my model down to a model where I felt I could sustain it. We can grow it slowly. We can grow organically. We didn't have to worry about a huge workflow. So, like, you know, if something happened again, like, you know, like uh, my, my wife has a health scare, I got to take care of her. My dad basically goes to the hospital. I don't have to worry about, hey, we have all these, like, you know, oh, we have all this huge pipeline of leads we have to work. You know, like, yeah, Charles, we need your opinion on it because, you know, these leads that we were kind of working, for example, at one point, they did their seven figure leads. You know, a piece of land that's only $200,000, but we could develop to be a multi-million dollar storage facility. So that, that's like any kind of kind of summarizes kind of why I made that transition. It's because it's really difficult to stay at the exact same spot. You're right. It's just like if I, if I lift weights, if I do the exact same workout every single day, chances are I'm not going to save the same amount of strength. I'm going to actually slowly, slowly put on weight over time, whatnot. You have to kind of almost like shock your body. And, and this comes from my background as a strength and conditioning coach. You have to shock your body every once in a while with new workouts, new new regiments to really basically continue to evolve your body. And that's the same thing with your mind. That's the same thing with your business. I um, I, I love that a lot. And just a quick side question. What are you currently, I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, your, your thought process around, you know, how you analyze value and your time. What are you currently not free from that you want to get free from? You know, it's funny that you ask that question because the things that I've handed off that I like doing, like, to be honest, like, I kind of like doing my personal finances. It saved me, like, maybe six hours a month. But then, like, now the other day, like, wait, I just noticed, like, I had this $13 charge that nobody caught because it was so small. They just kept reoccurring. I think I might have responded back to a text message. Yes, I got charged for it. So I think about more of those things, obviously. But I, I think the biggest thing is the sales. Um, the... Um, hardest part about retention and you might, are you familiar with the disc model? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we all know that for disc at SC, which is your admin, your operations team, executive assistant, 
those people often show time to most loyalty, but you're really, really good sales rep, you know, that had that high D, that high I. The problem with them is that they also have the least amount of loyalty and they're the ones that are basically have the highest value to the company. So you got to pay them most to retain them. So, you know, we focus on uh, retention as much as possible. But one of the things that's been hard for me to let go of is the sales approach. We have uh, a really good upfront model where my staff can take care of it. But ultimately to close these deals, the amount of training that goes involved, because it's not like we're trying to solicit a single family owner. I'm oftentimes soliciting like, um, a business owner, a mom and pop owner that has a $25,000 square foot facility. They've operated their whole life. There's an emotional component to it as well because it's like been their lifestyle for the last 20 years. And we're trying to buy it and then also try to expand it and maybe even turn into something that they don't recognize anymore. So, so I think that's been the most difficult thing is the sales approach side of it. Um, because, um, you, you want to, you want a hunter in that sales position but if they're too good, they also might be a little bit too entrepreneurial. Because I know I was in that role too as well. I was in multiple sales roles. And to be honest, I really not. It took only well, one company finally did get my loyalty. And now I modeled my business after that company. But all those other companies prior, if I was getting paid more, I was gone. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious on that note too. Because uh, I've, I've, I've seen this both ways. And I completely agree with what you're saying. Um I've, I've heard a version of this where, you know, certain people would say, don't ever hire anybody. In fact, I've got a really good friend that asks in the interview, do you have any desire, you know, to own your own business or blah, blah, blah. And, and they will absolutely not hire somebody that they think is going to be an entrepreneur or on their own in the next two to five years. And I'll never forget. I started my first business when I was 24 and I had a business partner and from our HVAC and plumbing business over the course of 10 years, I sold it in 2014. We probably incubated, you know, five to 10 other businesses during that time. And I remember my business partner always being really mad about it. You know, every time a technician would quit and go start their own business, he would just throw a fit. And I never, I'll never forget him saying, you know, I, he's throwing a fit. And I said to him exactly like what we did in 2004, like it's, it's America. And so there's two schools of thought. And I'm just curious where you've landed on this. Some people like my friend going through an interview will not hire anybody that they think isn't going to be around in, you know, two years, three years, five years. And my school of thought has always been, if I can take a top performer, like you're saying, and, and get value out of them for each other, like, like Franklin Covey would say in seven habits of highly effective people think win, win, and it's truly a win, win. Here's a great example. I had a CEO working for me for three years when I hired him. Now he's very entrepreneurial. He used to be my service manager years ago. He owns mobile home parks. He owns insurance companies. And he was kind of retired and bored even though, because like his businesses were just passive. And I attracted him like three years ago and I said, hey, why don't you come to work for me? And he said, I'll give you two years. I knew going into it that I only got two years out of him. And I ended up actually getting three, which was a better benefit. But what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I mean, because I, I've been that, I don't want to say disloyal because I mean, I do feel that the one, when I, when a company showed me appreciation and really made me feel like, Hey, we value you, even though I knew I was underpaid, but the, and then they were still keeping around. I was underpaid. That's what I think kind of things change, but I'm on their mindset that if you make yourself so invaluable to this company that I have no choice, but to give you equity in your company, that's awesome. That's how I look at things. So uh, another way I look at it is like, I had a conversation with an employee of mine 
that um, uh, it, they probably will end up leaving this company. What we actually are thinking is that there's a, a number of businesses we're thinking about purchasing. I am actually going to be their investor on it. They're going to sign on the debt and then they're actually going to exit the company, but I'm still, we're technically still going to be a business partner. So we're, we're, we're going to be leaving on good terms, but I just don't think that the role within the company had matched for them. But what I told them was, you know, listen, we're going to grow by X amount. So let's just say we're, we expect to grow by 30% a year for the next three years. If you do such an outstanding job and you grow us by 50% a year for the next three years, I have no problem giving you 20% of the company. I'm still getting what I want. And on top of that, I actually know that we have more stability now because I know that you have equity. So I'm on the roll that I don't mind giving up equity as long as it's earned. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. Yeah. So I, I don't know. That's another great version of it because I've, I'm of the school of thought, man, that, I mean, with equity, without equity, like I would rather have a one or two or three year productive relationship with somebody than not have a great relationship because I'm, I'm thinking if it isn't a 10 or 20 year relationship, it doesn't work. So I like that perspective too, of, you know, trying to tie in equity, which actually I'm, I'm at the point too. And I've said this so many times, like in the past, I've built all my businesses on my back and then I start replacing myself and really going forward. Um, I'm looking to build keys, you know, strategic relationships going into it. And I'm willing, you've said this so many times in this interview in different ways, but I'm much more willing to, you know, give away a certain percentage of the pie and not have to be a hundred percent of it. Um, and, and not have to, you know, build all that out on my back. There's only a few things that I'm really good at too. And that's the other thing that I've realized is if I can surround myself with people that are of the skill set that are, you know, complimentary to me. One of my mentors always said, if two partners have the same strength, one of them's not needed. If we can assemble a group of four or five or six partners, even better. So what's your, um, what are the one or two or three things that you're really great at? So I'm not, not trying to brag or anything, but that's probably my problem. Uh, my biggest problem is that I'm good at a lot of things. I'm a, I'm a really fast learner. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, my, my Twiddle's capital, like when you look at my background, um, I'm a licensed builder, building construction management. I worked in commercial lending, so I got the finance piece down. I've done private lending within our company. We do feasibilities consulting. I have a continuous education school for realtors. And then on top of that, I've been investing in a lot of other multi uh, or just classes outside of self storage. So, um, you know, that, that, to be honest, is my problem is that I, uh, because if you're a fast learner, you generally can become a good at a lot of things quickly, which to kind of tie it back to that same situation about like, let's say you have an employee that's really, really good for two years. The other thing that people realize this too, is that I worked in an operations world like that too. They had me for six months and essentially like the guy kept coming back to me. He's like, how did you do that? So fast? how do you do that? And I'd be like, oh, I just created shared folders between the two computers. Cause like, and it's like, oh, you can do that. And so I made their process even more efficient by being such a high performer. And so we, we have a military mindset kind of in this company from the standpoint that you are always training your replacement, either because you're going to uh, leave the company and we want to get that training time down, or more importantly, hopefully we're always promoting you so that way you're promoting your replacement. So from that aspect, I can tell you that that was one of my fears is, okay, well, now I got to train somebody else and go through all that trouble again. Well, no, we don't because our standard operating procedures for training somebody new is foolproof. I know this because my 10-year-old daughter is the one that's actually fact-checking it. I give her a dollar to review a standard operating procedure, and that's how she goes through it. <laughs> so, um, so really, I think the bigger question would be, you know, what are my weaknesses? And that's really what it is. The weak, my biggest weakness is, um, you know, 
not giving out tasks as fast as I probably should. I've always liked to learn tasks and then teach it. It's time to, and now I've been doing it more of trusting my staff to learn it and then teach it to somebody else instead. You know, I've heard that same, con- I was actually with Don Wenner from DLP Capital just this last Monday and and he kind of mentioned the same thing. You know, he's really good at, at, at uh, and he's built this amazing organization and, you know, they have a huge investor list and just an amazing, amazing company. Yeah. My wife and I went and visited him for a day and got to spend a day with him. Um, but, you know, he said the, kind of the same thing that he's, while he has built an amazing organization, he also said that, you know, not letting things go soon enough because he's so good yeah. at, you know, being the integrator and being in the weeds. And no, I shouldn't say in the weeds because that's not what he said. Being the integrator. He's like, I'm a visionary and an integrator. I'm good at being an integrator. And most of us that are visionaries are because we didn't wake up one day as entrepreneurs and realize all of a sudden we're visionaries. We built our businesses through the ranks and we become really good at a lot of different things. And we have such a hard time of replacing that. But that's also why you talk to, you know, if you talk to 20 entrepreneurs that are on the EOS system and they know they're a visionary, 18 of them probably are having a hard time finding an integrator because they can't fully, you know, release that over time. And so it's an interesting conversation. What, yeah, what, uh, let, let's get into the, the tactical side of the self storage space. What, uh, tell me kind of like the progression and, and what you guys are working on now and, and what you're excited about. And you have this amazing speaker event coming up. That's cool. Yeah. So, um, so my start, you mentioned kind of the beginning, you know, self storage has been running around for a while, but this last five years, it sounds, it just feels like kind of it's been everywhere, you know, and, the uh, exposure self storage I had was, you know, my father had an apartment complex, and then the guy across the street had a self storage facility. Called my dad's account and basically said, "Hey, you want to buy this self storage facility?" And we, we quickly found out that self storage was actually a really good pairing for multifamily. Well, one of our trade secrets is probably not as much a trade secret now is that we used to offer all the tenants a free month of storage at the storage facility across the street. You do that, and then they, 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 they leave their stuff there, and then they're too lazy to leave it, so they stay after that free month. Um, but when we sold that off, it was like, oh, my gosh, this industry, we're never going to sell high the high. We sold like 40 40 dollars square foot. It's never going to get. And then magically, we saw the industry kind of get taken over with technology. So um, I was actually doing a lot on the multifamily side, and then what happened was is that uh, as we got bigger, we started passing on these smaller deals, but – I had been doing so much direct marketing and cold calling sales leads, you know, through my staff that we still have these leads we want to convert because it's kind of like, well, they're coming in at free to charge to us. So what do you want to do with it? So then we started basically selling those to our clients. And then because of this huge run up on the market, those clients are kind of like, oh yeah, that property sold me and appreciate $100,000 times six. Now we want to get a multifamily as well. And so that was actually kind of one of the reasons why, you know what, I, I didn't want to get back into self-storage. And I don't want to compete against my clients on the multifamily side because that was a pretty strong income. Like I'd sell a property for them. Our brokers would get a $60,000 commission. And then we turn on and sell another property because they had 1031 and then you make like another $100,000 commission. So it's like, wow, we're making six figures basically got broken this. So that was kind of the timing uh, to basically get into self-storage. And then during that time, being the grinder that I am, I basically did prove it deals where I, I, I while still seeing storage owners that weren't quite interested in selling, I always look at these deals like, man, you're so far below market, right? You're just so scared to make Billy's mom upset or the soccer team head coach mad because, you know, you just don't want to get lip service for them for raising prices. So I went to these guys. I'm like, you know what? 
just let me do this for you. Just pay me like, you know, some small four figure sum and, and you're going to make this back through rent raises right away. And all I ask is that you pay this fee. But when you do sell yourself storage facility, I get the first, I get the first no. So if you're going to sell it, let me market it or let me buy it first. If I can't do what I, what you want, then that's fine. But just give me the first go at it. And so essentially like, like, you know, I take a facility that have like a $12,000 rent roll. I charge them $6,000 for three months to basically turn on the facility. And essentially what I would do is I'd go through the nightmares of raving tenant rents, 20 to five to 40% off. I make that owner look like, you know, like I make them feel sorry for him. Like, Oh yeah. He just couldn't handle, you know, people coming to his house at 12 o'clock at night saying he can't pay the uh, rent because their mom was in the hospital, Probably, you know, uh, texting him, you know, saying, Hey, can I just get one item out? You know, all these things, you know, that he basically made it like, you know, uh, just a crazy hour job for him. And so then essentially at the end of those three months, facilities running, we've trained these people to, to basically do things our way. Owner comes in, night and shining armor, like, Oh, Hey, I'm back magically the rents stay exactly where they're at and people like him way more than like us because we purposely made ourselves a scapegoat and in that process i was getting paid a goal not a very good dollar amount to basically learn on the job and essentially i basically learned on the job with three or four other facilities how to perfect that approach so by the time i ended up buying my first facility on my own the operations piece was on lockdown there was no way anybody was going to operate it better than me as a first-time operator that's pretty cool i like it so what's the what's the progression been? Where bring us to today? What's what, what's going on? Yeah, so now primarily we're just focused on self storage development. So we find the sites in house, um, and then also we're doing a lot of consulting. So I, we do feasibility studies nationwide, and we also do consulting on quite a few new builds. Um, I, I I didn't realize how much I can still keep learning, but uh, from each of these uh, consulting gigs, I always learn something new. Most of the time it's a different ordinance for a different state or something else you got to be worried about this type of insect that destroys this oil in this state, you know, things like that. But that's really kind of what we pivoted our model to, because when I looked at all the things that were best return on time, the building aspect of it was just so much more profitable, other aspects of the business. The other thing about it too, as well, is that, you know, so we got BPO on one of our storage facilities and that was only about $10 a square foot to stabilize it than what we thought if we basically kind of just held it. But then I looked at it, I'm like, wait, um, so little known fact, but um, if you buy a storage facility with SBA financing and some construction loan, SBA does actually take over a kick in until after you complete the construction. So the bank actually kind of carries the note temporarily. But as a result of that, there's actually like a two to four month window where if you sell in that two to four month window, so you don't have to pay all the SBA pre-penalties and all that crazy stuff like that. So that's a significant savings. And then I look at, okay, well, now the interest carry, all the whole cost, we have to stabilize it. I'm like, so when I really look at it, I'm like, it's only like four to six dollars a square foot more, but somebody else will do it because that's at least some value add for them too. Plus the other thing about is if you ever taken over a multifamily or a large business with lots of tenants, those first couple of months of implementing your policy is kind of a nightmare. So sometimes it's nicer just to buy an empty facility because then you just get implement your policies from the get-go, right? That's also why we like new builds because there's no surprises once, once we figured out the soil, I'm not going to have like, Oh, there's rotting wood behind this wall on a house. I just took down. Right. Yeah. So that's why we kind of just looked at that model. Like, you know, we can leave me on the bone for somebody else, but then I'm only doing two to four deals a, a year on average. I'm not doing a ton. I'm not super high volume. We consult on a lot more, but 
on average, those two to four deals for me are worth, you know, seven figures of potential, you know, net worth that is going to be added on. So if I can, you know, just do less management on those four facilities that we're building out and do two more instead, that's a lot more meaningful to my time. It's going to have a net worth. And it's also what I enjoy the most of the business too as well. So between those three things, it's a no brainer. So that's how kind of how we've evolved our model since then. Now I do still like um, getting in on the consulting operations side because I mean, it, it's amazing how many different ways I've seen people handle logistics for RV boat parking, for example. So I even so sometimes when I see a gig, I'm like, wow, this is a really complex job. You know, I'll, I'll do my I'll do my uh, fee a little bit cheaper because uh, I'm very curious to see how this plans out. And you know, I have a lot of expertise to bring in above. For example, like if you're building in Alaska there's obstacles that you just simply don't have, even when I'm building in Northern Michigan, you know I mean? Like frost laws, they are absolutely crazy. So, so that, that's really, I've been doing that again. I know I'm, I'm getting paid to also learn a little bit on the job, not learning a lot, but I am learning a little bit. I almost used to be size. And also the other thing about it too, as well as I'm so hands-on with this consulting too, as well, um, that uh, it, it always works out better for the client because like, if I find a problem that I don't know the answer to, even me not being included in the consulting package, I'm like, you know, I, I want to figure this out because that, that's the type of person I am. I'm a problem solver. So so who's your um, ideal consulting client? Is Are, are you... Are, are you dealing with people that this is their first acquisition? Are you dealing with institutional? Who, who's your ideal consulting client? Most of the time, they're first-time uh, first investors or they're somebody that has... Um, had a facility, but they bought existing, but they want to expand or add more on. So like uh, we do site planning. So some like, you know, people don't realize how important it is to just like get the site plan appropriate. Most people, what they'll do is they'll tell their engineer, just give me as much storage as you can on the site. And it's like, okay, well, when you give somebody that little direction, they're just going to charge you for hours nonstop. So we do things like site planning. We do things like the feasibility study. Uh, we even do the pro forma. So if you want a full 17 page pro forma that you want to give to your bank, we actually will do that too as well. So we are full service on that aspect. Uh, but our typical client, um, and I actually got this for being on a podcast from somebody else kind of talk about my problems is that um, it allowed me to keep my fees lower, but I found that I was spending too much time having conversations with people that just simply were not qualified for the program. They're like, they're making $40 an hour. There's no way they're going to pay a thousand dollars an hour. At that point in time, it does make sense for you to spend the extra 20 hours to learn that. So then what essentially what he did was um, he uh, uh, helped me create a spreadsheet. I paid him uh, basically a small finder's fee to screen the person. And then all he had to do was basically complete the survey out. If they hit one of the, um, responses that was automatic qualifier we just simply say we don't believe this is a, a fit for you and then they just automatically cancel them out if they were qualified then it came to me and that allows me to spend a lot less time you know talking in front of 150 200 people asking about my consulting program because right off the bat i know that they have the wherewithal whether it's they've spent the last two years trying to get into self storage they have the money where their their time is worth so much that it's worth them to pay it we're not spending time with people that are kind of Oh, I've just been thinking about developing last storage for the last two weeks or, or whatnot. So that's been probably the biggest evolution there. And now it's been a big thing for me saving time is leveraging our people, all these podcasts I've been on, you know, that you know, now they can offer it to if they if they know something that comes across to them for self-storage, I can pay them a, a pretty good referral fee simply just by giving them this quick survey to complete and screen them out. Wow. 
That's pretty cool. Um, so you got a big speaking event coming up. Let's talk about it. Yeah, so um, I uh, recently was announced. Uh, well, I knew ahead of time, but then they said that the official one wouldn't come later. So I was kind of nervous, like, are you guys going to screw me and, like, take it away? So I was like, it's kind of announcing the birth of your child. You, like, you're really excited. You want to tell everybody, but you don't want to see it too soon. Um, so I will be a national speaker at ISS in April 2023, the World Expo uh, in Las Vegas. And um, they actually changed the topic name, but I actually like it better. But I think it's um, my pain, your gain, um, learn from my struggles and self-storage. So it's kind of basically talking about all the things I've learned for building self-storage as efficiently and cheaply as possible while still maintaining quality because I'm, I'm literally right there doing the building construction management myself. Wow. I love it. It's exciting. Um, well, as we're kind of wrapping this up, I want to be cognizant of your time. What, uh, what have we not covered that you want to share and lastly, after that, where can people find you? Yeah, so I mean, you did a pretty good job kind of covering everything. So I really don't think I have anything else to add. Um, as far as adding me, um, I'm not great about being on social media as much as I should. Um, but um, the easiest way to access me would be at Instagram at Charles C and then my last name, K-A-O. So Charles C K-A-O. And then the, if you're looking for this content, you want to learn about self-storage or what are the other aspects of the businesses that we're investing in, um, that would be on YouTube at Twin Oaks Capital. Um, dot, uh, just Twin Oaks Capital. If you just search on YouTube, you'll find our company page. Awesome, man. Well, it's been a great show. And uh, I think it's really just cool the way that you're taking the consulting approach. And, and obviously, you know, I mean, speaking on stage at the international event in Vegas, that's going to be huge for you. So, um yeah, I just appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom, man. I know that the storage industry itself has a huge future ahead of it. And I just think that whole consulting model is really unique because, um, you know, I've been in a lot of different um, asset classes, as, if you will. And I've never really thought overly about storage other than, you know, as I'm exiting some of my real estate portfolio personally, I'm like, I got to get some exposure to this industry because it's really, it's really exciting and intriguing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. I appreciate your time, man. And if I can uh, do anything for you, let me know. But yeah, I encourage the listeners to reach out to uh, Charles and heck, maybe some of you are interested in getting into storage or, or need a consultant. Go ahead and reach out to him. So appreciate your time, brother. Cool. Thanks a lot. If you've found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.